gentlemen, welcome to another Funds on a Film podcast. My name is Scott Morris and I'm joined today by Craig Eastman. And tonight I'm yours for just £5. Cheap at half price and Drew Tavendale. Hello. I'm Phil Price, I'm not an author today. <laughs> I'm not on any kind of offer, that's my ceiling price, that's my RRP mate. If you, if you wait for the Steam Summer Sale, you'll get me for a quid. <laughs> Uh, one thing we've noticed over the years is that there's few things that Hollywood loves quite as much as itself. <laughs> the genesis behind this project, we're basically just going to be talking about some films that are based in the Los Angeles area. Largely due to the start of this year where it seemed like La La Land had, certainly had the buzz to win every Oscar going and turned out not to. While films like La La Land and others concerned with the navel-gazing exercise of making films do tend towards covering the perceived glamour of LA, it's also an industry that's quite happy to cast a rather more jaundiced eye at the greater Los Angeles area. So today, we're going to be taking a look at a number of films that show the seedier side of the City of Angels, and if you think that's a pretty tenuous theme worked around trying to strong-arm Drew into watching A Live and Die in LA, you are a horrible <laughs> cynic, and to be fair, quite right. <laughs> have you been avoiding having to watch it, Drew? It's not a film I've been particularly avoiding, but I'm no great fan of William Friedkin, so I've never been particularly mm. enthused by it. Mm. Okay. Although, potential spoiler, but it wasn't the LA film we watched for this podcast that I had the big problem with. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So we've uh, six films to get through today. The earliest, both well, probably both uh, in setting and of production, is 1974's Chinatown. Drew, would you like to tell us a little bit about Chinatown? Despite loving so much of the output of 1970s Hollywood, I had until, I don't say last week, but really that's March when we were originally supposed to do this, but <laughs> until very recently I had somehow managed to pull off the amazing double feat of not only not having seen Roman Polanski's classic Chinatown, but having somehow avoided all knowledge of it except for its name and its leading man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> really, I was completely oblivious as to anything to do with Chinatown at all and I have no idea how I managed that. You didn't even have to forget it. The upside of that, though, is that I was able to watch it with no preconceptions, no expectations, just fresh eyes and an open mind. That leading man that I mentioned is Jack Nicholson, in his ascendancy, and only one year before his turn and one flew over the cuckoo's nest would rightly land him an Academy Award. Nicholson plays J.G. Gittes, a private investigator in 1930s Los Angeles who specialises in extramarital affairs and who is... In marked contrast to the Sam Spades and Philip Marlowe's of the classic noirs to which this film owes a debt, pretty financially successful, with a nice suit, a nice office and a staff. Like those legendary PIs though, Gittes is still brought low by a dame. Though not, at first at least, in the way one might anticipate. Gittes, or Jake to his friends, is employed by Mrs Mulray to investigate her cheating husband, the senior engineer of the Los Angeles Water Department, and find proof of his infidelity. This Jake Julie does, and the incriminating photographs find their way into the newspapers, creating a scandal. Shortly thereafter, the unfortunate Mr Mulvey is found dead, apparently having committed suicide. Nothing is ever so simple in film noir, of course, and Gittes soon learns that Mulvey's death wasn't his own choice, nor indeed was Mrs Mulvey his wife, something he discovers when the real Mrs Mulvey, played by Faye Dunaway, turns up at his office and threatens to sue him. All of this leads Jake into beginning an investigation of what is really happening. To it, someone is creating, or at least manipulating and worsening, the drought that Ellie is currently in the grips of by dumping large amounts of drinking water into the sea. And why? For the money is this why, as it always is. Because the sea was thirsty. 
The drought is massively reducing the value of arable land and it's being bought up for pennies. But wouldn't you just know it, the massive new dam that is being proposed as the solution to the drought will direct lots of lovely plant nurturing water to the farmland and someone is going to make a killing. Again. On its release, Chinatown was rightly lauded, but incorrectly also referred to by many as a pastiche of the great film noir detective stories of the 1940s. Mm. Whether it is the compression of time, we are as far from Chinatown now as Chinatown was from those films when it was released, or whether those critics were simply wrong, Polanski's film is not a pastiche, but a true successor, or perhaps stablemate is a better term, to those classic tales of the hard-boiled, hard-drinking private dicks. It doesn't suffer, as could so easily have been the case, from nostalgia or artifice. It's just a film noir, and could easily have been made in the 40s. The period detail is exacting, and the fantastic photography has a distinct edge over its monochrome predecessors. The rich, warm, yellow and brown tones throughout really sell the sweltering heat and dryness of the drought-afflicted Southern California. Nicholson is superb as the intelligent, well-mannered, wise-cracking and principled, well, he has a code, <laughs> Jake Gittes, quick-witted and capable, but by no means invulnerable. There is notable support from Faye Dunaway, as the femme fatale who has a far darker and more tragic backstory than you might expect, and John Houston, who, of course, directed the Maltese Falcon, one of the all-time greats of the genre, as the seemingly amiable and down-home businessman Noah Cross. While I would argue that it's not quite of the quality of the classic stories created by Dashiell Hammett or Raymond Chandler, Robert Towns' screenplay, which won an Academy Award and was also contributed to by the director, is compelling. It may have taken a little while for me to warm to Chinatown, but as the mystery was slowly unravelled, I felt myself being drawn further and further in, and becoming ever more engaged. Polanski's direction is assured, tightly controlled, and truer vision. That the film lacks the sins of nostalgia, pastiche, or satire is due in large part to him. He didn't create an homage to film noir. He said, This is how a film noir was, is, and should be. Now pay attention and learn. He even manages not to pull a Tarantino and not nearly ruin his film with his cameo, which is a small but fairly menacing role. Mm. Brilliantly acted, masterfully directed, engaging, intriguing, and remarkably so given the time at which it was made, post Bonnie and Clyde in The Godfather, refreshingly unsaturated by violence and guns. It's probably Polanski's masterpiece, and assuming you're able to separate the art from the artist, then it's an absolute must-watch. I'm glad you mentioned separating the art from the artist too, because for the longest time, very much like yourself, actually I was aware of Chinatown and its reputation and its leading man and its leading lady, uh, and not so much anything of the plot. Mm -hmm. And it was only about three, maybe four years ago that I first got round to watching it, which... Considering the status of, you know, a lot of people hold it in regard as being one of, you know, up there with The Godfather as being one of the best sort of studio movies to come out of the 70s. And that's quite a lot of praise given the number of incredibly good studio movies that came out of yeah, the United States at that time. absolutely. And obviously that's a, you know, entirely subjective judgment on the viewer's part. But I really, really liked Chinatown from the off. I was put off watching it because obviously of Polanski's personal reputation. Mm -hmm. But when I did finally get around to setting that aside uh, and I started to watch it, it felt immediately like putting on a comfortable pair of slippers. It's <laughs> it's just a really easy film to watch, even though initially, plot-wise, it's quite complicated in its setup. You really do have to pay attention. The first couple of times, this is very much like the, the relationship I had with the conversation when I first watched the conversation. And at mm -hmm. the first couple of times I sat down to watch Chinatown, I ended up falling asleep. It shouldn't be taken as some sort of judgment on the movie itself. But it's, it was a very easy watch. I just wanted to mention, for the sake of 
any new listeners or listeners less familiar with Craig. <laughs> Craig falling asleep during a film is not an indictment of any film at any point ever. He's quite adept at that particular skill. It's <laughs> no mark of quality, no. Uh, no mark of judgment of quality, rather. Yeah, so I immediately found this to be a really sort of comfort food of film. It's so well produced, although it's so quite densely plotted for the type of tale it is. It just feels like Nicholson's performance kind of takes you by the hand. I love that his character is really quite ambiguous for the most part. He's not necessarily marked out as a great hero. He is just a private eye going about his job in a day-to-day way. Some of some of what he does could be construed as being morally dubious, but really he's just working he's just working toward toward an end. He makes no real judgment of anyone involved in affairs himself. He is just there to get to the bottom of things, um, certainly until much later in the movie at least anyway. So it's probably so I first watched it three, four years ago. It was probably about two years ago that I finally managed to watch it from beginning to end. <laughs> and it really has. It's one of those films that I could probably quite comfortably, along with the likes of Goodfellas and the conversation, I could quite comfortably have on repeat play for the rest of my life if I was forced to make a choice to do such a thing. I'm not sure under what circumstances that would be, <laughs> but I would have no problem at all watching this film on indefinite loop for as long as was deemed necessary by whatever power put me in that rather bizarre situation that I've somehow envisaged for myself. (laughs) But yes, uh, that aside, uh, really a fantastic movie. And can I just say as well, possibly certainly a candidate for the best uh, original poster artwork of all time. I've always Mm. loved that image. Long before I ever got around to watching the movie, I found that poster artwork really, really enchanting. But that's completely by the by. A really fantastic film full of fantastic performances and a plot which is quite rewarding to pay attention to. And let's say consummately directed your feelings on Polanski as a man aside, a really fantastic piece of work. And I would say, yeah, definitely. Of the material that I have consumed myself, definitely one of the, the strongest studio pictures to come out of the arguably the strongest decade of movies. Yeah, well, they sell up American cinema anyway. Mm-hmm. Yes, unsurprisingly, I completely agree. Another film like Drew, I hadn't watched this until preparation for this podcast, again because of Roman Polanski's extracurricular activities. And, well, it's just a tremendous film to watch, isn't it? Anchored by that tremendous central turn and the doggedness that Jake shows chasing this plot's through line and uncovering more pieces of a puzzle just makes this a very hugely engaging and really enjoyable watch. Mm-hmm. And it's a well, it's, it's a complex plot, but I never found it particularly confusing. It does actually do a really good job of explaining mm. the various factions and how they're going to play off each other. It's nothing you're going to be able to predict, obviously, but once once you actually see what's happening, it's like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense, yeah. And there's no logic jumps or anything like that or anything that just seems yeah. weird or out of place, you know? There's certainly mystery and intrigue, and yes, it's quite densely plotted, but at no point did I wonder what on earth is going on here in that sort of way of like, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I did because I fell asleep for 30 minutes. As long as you're paying attention. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, there's no reliance on, you know, Deus Ex. There's no, um, yeah, there are no sort of dog legs uh, in terms of plotting or anything. It's just very, very well plotted, very well paced, and just a really intriguing story. Yeah, as long as you're paying attention and to be honest, I think if you were watching this, well, unless you're Craig, I don't know how you could not be paying attention because <laughs> it's just it's completely gripping from... I'm not quite for start to finish. I, I say it took me a little while to warm to it. I'm not quite sure why that was. It's not like I didn't like it to begin with, but it just took me a little while to, to really sort of settle into the film and then see what it was doing. Mm. But as long as you're paying attention, then you are not going to be lost, but it's not like it's spelling everything out to you. I think as well, yeah. Nicholson 
It has to be. I mean, you know, pick a role, any role for Nicholson, especially during this period. But I think of all of all those roles, you think of Nicholson. He's one of those actors who can sometimes be guilty of being archly himself. If you mm. think about his performance in in The Shining, what you know, he's not afraid to wrangle out the sort of the the history on in a way that only he can, and somehow keep them under control and under measure. But you know, um, big performances nonetheless. Here, this really feels like, especially from this period, one of his most measured performances it's not necessarily yeah. a, a movie stealing performance it feels like his performance is weighted quite well against that of the supporting cast yeah it's not as well measured maybe is a reason word. restrained is mm. perhaps the word I mean, it's not I mean, it can be an, an occasion but it's not quite the scenery tour that someone like say al pacino is yeah but he can have that sort of same flamboyance then just as I said, just it was only a year before One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, and yeah. and you see that and it's a fantastic performance, but it does feel like you, know, you think of Jack Nicholson, you think of that, or the the crazy look in his eyes and The Shining, mm-hmm. and this is it's so much more moderated, mm-hmm. but it, it fits perfectly. If he had done something more outlandish, it would have upset everything in the film. Yeah, yeah. and it's just it's so perfectly played, and maybe that's partly due to the director as well, mm-hmm. because the rest of the direction is so good. But everything just works so well in this. And yeah, Nicholson seems to have pitched his performance just right because there's no histrionics from him. Mm-hmm. And he's, his character's really quite human because, yes, he's not he's not a great hero, but he's not a bad person either. He has a code of sorts. And you see that he's not just a gung-ho hero that is a, um, not afraid of anybody or anything. He's sensibly afraid of some things. He's not invulnerable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just it's such a, a well-pitched performance. And and very committed as well. It wasn't until rewatching it a couple of weeks ago in preparation for this recording that I was reminded I really paid attention to, for example, the scene where he's caught in the, the runoff channel and he gets washed down the runoff channel. And uh-huh. in, in the one take, it's quite clearly Jack Nicholson and not a stuntman getting washed, <laughs> getting, yeah, yeah. getting washed down a weir or something like that and into a chain link fence and dragging himself out. And as he drags himself out, you're like, oh, it's not a stuntman. It's Jack, it's Jack Nicholson who's allowed himself to be partially drowned um, in pursuit of this role that's commitment i can't imagine he would do that for just any director so i'd be interested to read more about the uh, the production of the movie uh, when i have time to do so one of those films about which i'm sure there's probably no shortage of lore uh, and an intrigue around the production of but i'm not party to that at the minute so uh i just a very very rewarding movie so i guess that's enough of that we can move on now uh, forward so many years to mid 80s mm-hmm. la the neon tinged nightmare that is to live and die in LA. <laughs> when LA thought it was Miami. Yes, to live and die in LA, which anyone who's listened to our podcast religiously, first of all, get help. But secondly, <laughs> will probably have heard me mention to live and die in LA at some point as a personal favourite. Mention William Friedkin to a film fan and they will in all likelihood respond first with either The Exorcist or The French Connection, depending on their personal proclivity. Although I'm gathering from Drew's, <laughs> Drew's mention earlier, his own personal proclivity maybe to mention. <laughs> I love The French Connection. I think The French Connection is superb, and but it's pretty much where mm. my relationship with William Friedkin begins and ends in any positive manner. Fair enough. Well, you may even get the odd sorcerer or cruising in there, but certainly that film fan's first instinct will be to gravitate toward the director's 70s output, and deservedly so, I'd say. There is a less likely answer, however, in To Live and Die in L.A., Friedkin's oft-forgotten 1985 Secret Service thriller and a film behind which there is a growing movement for reassessment. Now, do not stop me if you've heard any of the following before, because we'll be here all bloody day. 
But To Live and Die is a story of an on-the-edge Secret Service agent named Richard Chance, <laughs> uh, played by William Peterson, whose partner is murdered just days short of retirement while investigating a talented counterfeiter on his own time. Cue Roger Murtaugh's signature exasperated saxophone riff. Uh, Chance vows to do whatever it takes to bring the perpetrator to justice. And for the most part, you'd think that would be all there is to know. His name is Chance. People tell him he's crazy. His partner just got killed ahead of retirement. His new partner is a total straight edge. If William Peterson spent the whole movie in a t-shirt emblazoned with a 100-point impact font reading I'm a maverick me, it would probably not look out of place. And it would certainly not put me off watching To Live and Die on endless repeat because, as I have said before, it is, quite frankly, the second best movie to come out of Hollywood during the 80s. <laughs> and I'm inserting pause for Drew's retort there. <laughs> uh, um, I will, uh, this is the hell I die on, Drew. <laughs> because I, I, I'm i already at like 400 films that are beyond this in terms of what's came out of This Hollywood is the hell I die on, Drew. <laughs> In fact, in fact, to live and die is so archly eighties that I suspect the reason it fell off so many people's radars is that it probably all seemed quite embarrassing the second the clock ticked over to nineteen (laughs) ninety. Now, however, the eighties are apparently cool again, and a lot of people seem to be cottoning on to the movie's strengths, of which there are many. Drew Peterson's portrayal of Chance may be shackled on paper, at least by the cliche in which it seems initially mired. But beyond that single sentence synopsis with which I opened this ramble, he makes a bloody good case for one of the cop thriller genre's most compelling anti-heroes. In acid-washed denim and up-collared leather jacket, Chance weaves his way through the LA underworld and new wave art scene in pursuit of a gloriously, quietly unhinged Willem Dafoe as Eric Masters, the painter-turned-counterfeiter whose henchman offed his partner in the opening act. In doing so, he leverages informants and contacts whom he is happy to use and abuse for his own satisfaction, both professionally and personally. In the case of Darlene Floigel, Floigel? Flugel? Let's call the whole thing off. (laughs) Darlene's character, Ruth, a parolee who Chance is stringing out as informant and a sexual partner. Chance's emotionally driven pursuit of his quarry and increasingly unethical tactics do not sit well with new partner John Vukovic, played by John Pankow, nor do they lead to your typical Hollywood ending, with their hero's apparently burgeoning nihilistic bent predictably seeding his downfall. A blistering final act begins with Chance's assertion that in order to get close to Masters, he needs money to pose as a buyer, and that the only way to get that kind of money is to rock up unannounced to a drugs buy and steal it. In doing so, Chance and Vukovic unknowingly kidnap an undercover FBI agent who is subsequently killed, <laughs> precipitating a downward spiral of total f***ness and lending us one of cinema's most criminally forgotten car chase sequences. To Live and Die in LA is a curious beast, at once conforming to genre tropes, which were, at that point, already a couple of decades out of date, (laughs) while simultaneously riding an art-pop new wave of experimentalism. It's a precarious balancing act that works surprisingly well, Drew. Despite veering wildly... (laughs) Despite veering wildly from shove city hall up your ass, tough guy bravado one moment to setting fire to modern artworks on a veranda just because pretentiousness the next. In that sense, I reckon To Live and Die represents perhaps the purest distillation of 80s aesthetics and attitudes in pop culture, with the added bonus of a bespoke soundtrack courtesy of Wang Chung. And, in case you think I'm being facetious when I say that, Drew, you're listening to the man who owns not just the soundtrack to this movie, but also everybody Wang Chung tonight, Wang Chung's greatest hits, on vinyl and CD. And iTunes. Listen, Wang Chung sang nonsense lyrics to pretentious synth melodies while wearing cream-knitted sweaters, and for that reason they are significantly better than any of us. Punch through the membrane of decade-at-time-forgot-cheese, 
Mmm, delicious 80s cheese. And you'll find a surprisingly complex thriller that doesn't flinch when it needs to bring the tough stuff, nor is afraid to throw a plot curveball when it matters. A satisfyingly anti-Hollywood climax is pretty much the cherry on top of a delightfully self-indulgent cake of excess, from which I am quite happy to serve myself a slice any time, Drew. <laughs> to live and die in LA is the cinematic gift that keeps on giving, Drew. I'm feeling tremendously victimised right now. <laughs> As well you should. <laughs> Go on. Give me your anti-take. First of all, um... This is the hell I die on, Drew. <laughs> if you are talking about the most 80s of 80s movies, then you seem to have conveniently forgotten, although probably blissfully forgotten, the magnificence that is Miami Connection. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that qualifies as a movie. <laughs> I really don't. Oh, dear. No, no, it doesn't. Um, yes. We did attempt to record a commentary on that back in our one-liner days. Yes. And against the ninjas, we will fight the battle to win. That is an atrocious film, but it is incredibly 80s. To be honest, I don't have much to say one way or other about To Live and Die in LA. I didn't not enjoy it, but it left very little impression on me one way or the other. As I mentioned earlier, this is a rescheduled podcast. I originally watched these films a couple of months ago in preparation for this, and I remember well, pretty much all of the facts of what happened in the film but can remember almost no emotion I felt about it I did like the the rather unexpected un-Hollywood ending mm-hmm. I, appreciate, I always appreciate that in almost any, any film at least where it doesn't feel too forced I think it's in fairness to you I don't think it's necessarily an emotionally engaging film because necessarily because it's it's central character is so nihilistic Pillock yeah. also. he's just not yeah. a pleasant guy no, he's not. And shockingly, from about the age of 15, because I've I've been in love with this film for a long time, and from about the age of 15 to about 25, so it's probably about a 10-year period, I so wanted to be William Peterson in this film. And I watch it now and I'm, hor- <laughs> I'm horrified at myself for even thinking <laughs> for even thinking that. But from that self-destructive nihilistic point of view... What I think is a, a, a fantastically compelling character, not not a nice one. No, he's he's quite a compelling character. I'll grant you that. It's not like I disliked it particularly. Just the whole thing left me feeling kind of cold. Mm. Um, and part of that is is kind of the point. I think there's a sort of detachment from almost like detachment from humanity running through mm. this film. It feels to me that ended as well, quietly devastating when you consider the implications for um, Darlene Flugel's character. Yeah, mm. well, yeah. Well, so they're both parts of the ending. So it's like the William Peterson ending mm-hmm. and then yes the woman at the end of the film yeah and, and yes it's quite bleak and I do often like a bleak ending that's not necessarily because I like bleakness it's because it's so rare just not, just <laughs> not one that's soundtrack to Wang Chung yeah, um I cannot I, I don't even remember the music in this it just it, <gasps> it this film just didn't seem to have any impact on me it, it was I was intrigued enough to watch it and find out where it was going and I liked the, how the story ended. It's just that it largely left me cold. I never felt particularly invested in the film at any point. And as opposed to some other William Friedkin films, particularly films that might be called The Exorcist, which are amongst the worst films ever made because it's The Exorcist and it's terrible. Not that I have strong feelings on that particular William Friedkin film. But yeah, it just it didn't make me angry or anything like that. I, it just kind of left me cold. And when it comes to mid-1980s William Peterson films, this is not the one I would choose to watch. Mm. 
I'm assuming you would go for Manhunter. Yes, Manhunter I would watch um, several times, and this I, I don't think I'll ever watch again. I don't mind having watched it this once. This is the first time I've seen it, but I suspect it so will right, be the only time. we don't time. need to be friends if you don't want to be, Drew. Craig, <laughs> you spent your entire review of that abusing me, largely. Um, it's the hill I die on, Drew. <laughs> um... I thought I was repeating myself, but I do remember everything that happened in this film, but I remember pretty much no emotion associated with it at all, and mm. it's not a bad film, and it's well made. I mean, I don't like Willem Dafoe in it so much. Willem Dafoe's a kind of, he's a strange guy, he's a kind of strange guy. Um, mm. Sometimes in a film of that kind of strangeness really works, like in Platoon. Mm-hmm. As Elias in Platoon, I really like him, and then other times he just feels so sort of alien to me, almost, mm. uh, and that's maybe what I felt like in this film. I get that. Otherwise, yeah, it's a competent film, but it just didn't... It's more like a thing that was there for me. I, I don't have strong feelings one way or the other. Do you have strong feelings, Scott? Tell me you have strong feelings. <laughs> I can't wax as lyrical about it as you can, Greg, but I do like this film. It's, it's just an interesting little curiosity piece more than anything else because there, there's so many conflicting things that somehow just hang together well enough to work mm-hmm. when really it shouldn't. I mean, the plot sort of swings between bleak nihilism and just outright farce at some points <laughs> so you have this the darkness of that combined with wang chung as a soundtrack to it all and the the general 80s aesthetic of it all and there's lots of interesting little conflicts in the film it's good to see the early appearances by a lot of factors that i turned out quite like uh, i don't know if it's william peterson's first film but i don't think it was in much before this i always liked um william peterson's performance i think is uh really compelling yeah, as I say, it's not a, not a good character, not a nice character, but one that is watchable. Um, Defoe probably wouldn't have been had much more credits to his name at that point, and I think his alienness does kind of work for me as the mm. as the the heel of the piece because he's built up in Chance's mind as this boogeyman, and having him be almost otherworldly is part of what he's doing, mm. and there's just strange arbitrary, pointless decisions that we don't really need to have any rationale. Why is he burning stuff? What was the point of that? But that, yeah. that works, makes him, I, it makes I him buy, affecting. I, I buy that as the artist. The only part of his character that it, I took me a long time to reconcile was the, the part of the murderer. Mm. For the longest time, it didn't work for me that he had a henchman to do his dirty work, but he was quite willing just to, you know, uh, well, it's not plot spoilers, but at some point he blindly murders a, <laughs> murders a guy. Um, in quite brutal fashion, not graphic fashion, but um, Mm -hmm. quite brutally. And that didn't sit well for a while with me. It felt a little bit odd, but I've kind of accepted it now. Because like you say, Scott, this is a film which works in spite of itself. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a strange mashup of, I used to say, genre tropes and outright weirdness. Mm. Yeah, works to me and I always quite enjoy watching it. It's certainly nothing that would ever put into heavy rotation, but I'll dig it out once every five years and give it a look and very much enjoy my time with it. And I think the one thing, as you kind of touched on, that Friedkin doesn't get any respect for in this is some of the really good action scenes, mm-hmm. either whether it's either car chases or the on-foot chases as well. He does a really good sense of pacing mm-hmm. and uh, motion for putting those sequences together and that makes it all the more enjoyable to watch. Everybody must Wang Chung tonight. You live, Scott. I'll see you in court, Drew. <laughs> Can I ask Greg, though, if this uh-huh. is what you consider the second best film of the 1980s, what's your favourite? Blade Runner. So you think this is better than Die Hard? Mm, I enjoy this more than Die Hard. That surprises me to hear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I think this has aged better than Die Hard. If I go back and watch Die Hard now, which let's be honest, it's not exactly a chore to do. Um, <laughs> I do think it's dated more. Whereas I think this still feels that bit much more innovative because it swings so wildly from such reliance on just, you know, from one second, absolutely stayed tropes. And at certain points, dialogue that makes me cringe. Oh, I really like the rain. Yeah, it's groovy. Um, (laughs) Do you know what I mean? From that to like bizarre art house, new wave, crazy experimental stuff on the other. I still haven't found an ending to a movie that I enjoy because enjoy is not the words but that I savour quite so much as the one here. It is one of those films where no one no one walks away clean from this movie. A, a lot of people walk away dead. <laughs> um, a lot of people walk away dead, and the ones who are left behind are either irrevocably changed for the worse, and uh, in specific I'm thinking about Vukovic, John Pankow's character, or are trapped in an absolute personal hell. And I'm thinking of Darlene Flugel's character there. There's, it's just such a downbeat and I, God, again enjoys not the word but I bloody love a downbeat ending. I get fed up of the hero saving it. I get fed up of the hero frankly and I'm more compelled by anti-heroes in that respect not because I necessarily identify more with them. I'd be worried if I did. Um, I might have thought I did when I was a, te- a teenager but I understand now as an adult that I don't but I, I relish that antithesis much much more in something like this and I just think it says something much more about the human condition that in a set of circumstances such as this guess what everybody comes out for the worst I think that's a much more honest assessment than hero jumps in at the end of the day shoots the bad guy and you know survives with a flesh wound and rides off into the sunset I just that's just not the life experience I think anyone has I think in a set of circumstances where a police officer accidentally kidnaps an FBI agent because he's stealing drug money in pursuit of a murderous counterfeiter I don't think that's a scenario that's going to turn out well for anyone yeah it's not comparable in any way in terms of the content but it's one of the reasons I have very little time for Lars von Trier but the ending of <laughs> The ending of Dogville makes me so happy because they oh, just like okay. they uh, just kill everybody. It's like yes, there's, there's no um, forgiving of people for, mm. for the bad things they've done or anything. And, and I think um, I haven't seen Dogville, but yeah, that was my understanding of of the ending of that. And for, for and for that reason, I keep meaning to catch up with that. You've just reminded me to put it on my watch list. Yeah, in terms of just talking about 1980s films, though, it's neither Blade Runner nor Dianelli would be anywhere near the top of my favorite 1980s films, but. Well, apparently we'll see each other in court <laughs> and I'll challenge your um, I'll challenge your to live and die in LA with my cinema paradiso and um, Akira and Arthouse Pap <laughs> and the naked gun I'd much, I'd much rather have a film that pretends to be Arthouse at points <laughs> and once upon a time in America I will take your Friedkin and I'll raise you a Leone nah, overrated hack <laughs> <laughs> no, I think this is, listen, I'm under no illusions. There's no objective argument for this to be made. Uh, sorry, for this uh, to be made, for this to be one of the greatest films of the 80s. But it is the film that I enjoy the most after Blade Runner from the 80s. Uh, it's, I hold it very dear and I absolutely love it to death for all of its for all of its flaws. And it is still the second best film to come out of the 80s. And um, <laughs> yes, that's that. That's that. We better talk about something else because I'm going to get caught in an endless feedback loop here. 
Uh, I was just going to say, talking of the 80s, um, and thanks to our friends of the Magic Lantern podcast, I caught up in a, another 1980s film that would I'd put well ahead of this too, which is Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. So, there are so many 1980s films better than this, but but we know you're wrong, Craig, so there lies, you go. Lies, lies. I, d- I could count on the fingers of one finger the Spike Lee films that I've actually watched, which is quite it's, a shocking admission. Is it the one that only won the 25th hour by any chance? It is. Which is fantastic. But um, Yeah, I was going through my I, heavy Ed Norton phase then. I only just watched Do the Right Thing two days ago. Mm. I'd been... I, because they covered it and I didn't want to listen to their episode till I'd seen it. Mm. And I'm still not sure what to make of it, but it's a deeply affecting film. It's definitely one I would recommend watching. They do have a habit of picking good ones. Mm, they do. So I guess that takes us nicely to 1987's Less Than Zero, or if it doesn't, I'll just claim that it did and hope no one notices. <laughs> so Less Than Zero, I went through a bit of a Brett Easton Ellis phase in my younger days. I believe that was prompted by the adaptation of American Psycho. Still a very good film. During which I caught up with the author Terribile's debut novel, Less Than Zero. While it's undeniably powerful stuff, I found it just too willfully tasteless and nihilistic to be remotely believable. Looking back at it now, from my current state of apathy and cynicism, all hope and idealism having been beaten out of me between the anvil of reality and the hammer of experience, I realised that... (laughs) It was, if anything, too forgiving of its views on the rich and arrogant. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, how the passing of time will (laughs) reset the barometer of... (laughs) Not that a Tory government will do that to your soul at all. No, or a walking Fanta bottle in a bad wig. (laughs) However, this uh, Eastern Ellis phase did not extend to viewing 1987's Less Than Zero, uh, most notable these days for containing one Robert Downey Jr., uh, just as well as it has been adapted out of all recognition to be much more palatable, which might come as a surprise to anyone that's seen it. (laughs) Including me, yes. (laughs) Palatable's not the word I'm thinking of, Scott. Morally lax or desperate as this film's characters get, at no point does anyone mention a 12-year-old sex slave. Nothing's unfilmable, true, but some things are perhaps better off unfilmed. (laughs) The basics of this film, at least, are pretty easy to relate. Andrew McCarthy's Clay returns from the East Coast to his Los Angeles home for Christmas, but less to see his family and more his old friends. He's received a letter from ex-girlfriend Blair, played by Jamie Gertz, begging him to come home to talk some sense into former bestie Julian Robert Downey Jr., Uh, these two having formed a loose couple since Clay's departure. While he's been away at university, Blair is now a coke-addled model, and after Julian's business ventures failed, he's turned to increasing volumes of drugs, estranging himself from his family, and getting himself deep into debt to his former friend and current dealer Rip, played by James Spader. Despite all of their best efforts, Julian can't kick the habit, leading to Rip forcing Julian to work off the debt through prostitution, from which Clay tries to extract him. Along the way, Clay and Blair rekindle their relationship as they tour the myriad bars and clubs of the 80s scene looking for Julian, filled with the rich and famous pursuing ludicrous hedonism entirely detached from society. I suppose, despite all the changes, Less Than Zero captures the essential spirit of the novel inasmuch as it's full of horrible characters being horrible (laughs) to each other. As for the changes, the softer treatment for the protagonist, along with the love triangle angle, never feels particularly convincing, and the token attempt at pointing out that drugs are bad, okay, 
could never come across as anything more than ham-fistedly over the top. The main reason for this falls flat stems from Andrew McCarthy and Jamie Gerbs, of whom you do not see much of these days because they are awful at this whole acting thing. Downey, at least, has the charisma to provoke some interest in his plight, <laughs> although at this stage of his career it's not married to the talent and experience that he developed in later years, so it's still hard to call it a good performance from him. James Spader is, as James Spader does, which is badly. <laughs> Yeah, James Spader is, is pretty much the same whether he's in this or playing the voice of Ultron. He's the same person. <laughs> Perhaps the biggest turn off for me in this film is it's boring moralising, particularly when you're not particularly on board with that. It treats shaking drugs and promiscuity as inherently, obviously, morally indefensible, which does not sit well for me. If you're not harming anyone, I don't see why it should be harshing your mellow. For this film, the cause and the effect are inseparable, at which point it's just an elaborately shot PSA film. There's some interest to be had here, I guess, mainly from knowing how the Brat Pack collapsed under the same strains as the characters do here, and in general as a capsule of ludicrous 80s excess, documenting abuses of both substance and fashions. Not all that much interest though, and the narrative and characters of this film do not hold up their end of the bargain. In terms of showing another grim side of Los Angeles, as is this podcast episode's mandate, it is a success, but that is the only level on which that term could be applied. <laughs> not worth excavating from the vaults at all. No, this film I don't think I'd even heard of before we were going to do this podcast. I enjoy American Psycho a lot, but it's all that and Rules of Attraction are my only real experiences mm. with Brett Easton Ellis material, and I've never particularly wanted to seek out anymore but this is it's a complete non-entity of a film for me much like <laughs> most of the people in it it's it just seems to have pretty much no redeeming features like most of the mm. people in it <laughs> i mean the only time that really i sort of invested any emotion i was wondering what happened that robert downey jr went from the successful guy with all of these plans to incredibly Badly addicted to drugs and massively in debt in what four and a half months? Yeah, drugs. It was drugs that did it. Mm. The time drugs frame are bad. Seems, oh yes, the time frame seems ridiculously compressed because mm. it does. It starts with Clay going away to university on the east coast, and so that's what September, October, yeah, something one... like that. And he's back for Christmas, yeah. and everything's <laughs> gone to shit in that incredibly narrow time frame. And it seemed not long <laughs> enough. If he'd come back, you know, maybe halfway through college. And yeah. that this had happened. That then I was, I had uh, I at least understood the the route that Robert Downey Jr.'s choices had taken him down. But it seems too compressed. And then you add to that the fact that there's no reason to care about a single person in this film. It's a bunch of vapid rich people doing stuff, and I simply don't care about anyone or anything in it. Hmm. <laughs> I just was just willing this film to end because it's <laughs> vapid and empty and pointless and has nothing interesting to say nothing interesting in it no interesting people in it and i hate this film <laughs> well i not, not that i feel strongly about this film and this the second not, not best I, film of the 80s <laughs> i think you mean third best <laughs> um well it sounds like i've somewhat dodged a bullet but for the wrong reason and what i'm going to say is going to paint me in a somewhat silly light but I've, <laughs> I, I long ago i made peace with the fact that would happen quite often so i didn't watch less than zero because i refused to watch uh, a film with a certain actor in it and this is an actor about whom i feel the same way as drew feels about dennis quaid is it james spader <laughs> no it's bill pullman drew and ah. 
you'll be thinking to yourself, well, Bill Pullman's not in this movie. No, but he is in Zero Effect, with which I've only just realised ten minutes ago, <laughs> I confused with this movie. <laughs> um, however, given your assessment of it, and the fact that for most films that aren't to live and die in LA, I agree with both of your... <laughs> or I will, I will, I will take as written your judgment call on any given movie. I'm quite glad that I made a somewhat silly mistake. <laughs> yeah, it's um. Full disclosure, I'm an idiot. <laughs> yes, but it, it is um. It's shot on you being an idiot this time. Well, it's the first time it seems to have paid dividends. Yes. yes. Uh, yeah, Scott has mentioned Robert Downey Jr. He because he doesn't have the acting experience or the life experience actually I mean, with his own drug problems which I think he's brought to bear in a lot of his later work hmm. he doesn't have the acting experience to really add anything particular to this film but there was some sort of innate um, charisma is probably the best word um, hmm. yeah. that at least generates a bit of sympathy for his character in this film and there, there's some ability there that, that, that if there's anything that's good in this film it's like you can see that even then there's some promise in Robert Downey Jr.'s ability yeah. Um, although the the irony is now looking back is that he would basically be in the same position that his character is here. Hmm. Yeah. And fortunately got out of that. Hmm. But beyond that, it, it's so vapid. I mean, and a good half of me wonders whether that's the point. It's just it's an indictment of the rich people of Los Angeles that it's so vapid and empty. But <laughs> it doesn't make for an enjoyable watch in any way, shape, or form. Well, it's the sort of cast that doesn't need a director as much as it needs a woodcutter, isn't it? Yeah, very much the runt of the uh, Easton Ellis uh, litter, and at least as of about fifteen years ago, I suppose I'd read more pretty much everything Ellis had done, and I kind of like it, although he does seem to be writing the same story over and over again. But I don't mind that so much. But yeah, this <laughs> adaptation in particular has shaved off enough of the rough edges of the novel to make it sort of semi-filmable. But palatable should not have bothered with it really. No, it's um, it's, it's not... taken anything interesting that I had to say apart from the early scene in the eighties was a bit vapid, and that doesn't really. <laughs> well done, you've to... captured that. <laughs> yeah, well done. You that one sentence has been dragged out to hundred minutes and, <laughs> and and ruined all of our lives in the process. So thanks for that. <laughs> a stunning realization, faithfully yes. rendered. <laughs> yeah, I've dodged a bullet there, haven't I? Yes. So I think that's all we really need to spend on <laughs> less than zero. Yes, because uh, a it's, a, it's a well-named film. Yes. It really is. So that brings us on for a bit of a jump to Boys in the Hood. Yes. Now, as much as I may curse Scott for having brought less than zero to my attention and made me watch it, uh, he, he does he does drive us with a, with a whip, not even a metaphorical one. Uh, he does make us watch these as a bad man. I welcome the chance to watch Boys in the Hood again. I, I'd always been very, very fond of this film, but it'd been a shockingly long time since I'd actually seen it, and I am delighted to find that it's every bit as good as I remember it being. Written and directed by debutant John Singleton, Boys in the Hood is the tale of three adolescents growing up to become young men in a neighbourhood of south-central Los Angeles at the beginning of the 1990s. The boys are half-brothers Ricky, Morse Chestnut, and the Doughboy, Ice Cube, and their friend Trey, Cuba Gooding Jr. Ricky and Doughboy live with their mother. Ricky is a promising athlete, but his chances of earning a scholarship are made difficult by his lack of academic prowess and the fact that he already has a child of his own. Doughboy is a recidivist who spends the time when he isn't in juvenile detention drinking on the front porch with his friends. 
Across the street, Trey lives with his fearsomely named father Furious, played by Lawrence Fishburne, though his life is more conventional for his age, trying to do his best in school and trying to do his best with girls. We meet the boys first as preteens and see Trey fulfil of his mother's promise to send him to live with his father if he misbehaved at school again. The disciplinarian sets out the rules for his son, but it is clear from the outset that he wants the best room. After an establishment of the friendships and the nature of the hood, we skip forward seven years and Trey is now nearing the end of high school. He is still friends with Ricky and Doughboy and has a job, a girlfriend and, hopefully, a future. The realities of life in the hood, though, will come to affect the three friends in very different ways. Boys in the Hood can, in some ways, be considered a war movie, with the largely white LAPD as the occupying force. Helicopter searchlights and gunfire have become a way of life. So inured to their presence have become the inhabitants of South Central that the regular rattle of weapons fire is an irritant that stops you from doing your homework, and not something to immediately send you diving for cover. But there is certainly still fear and danger. Plenty of that. And it is through this war zone that Trey, Ricky and Doughboy must try to safely navigate and avoid the roaming dangers of gangs and perpetual temptations of drugs and violence. Director Singleton could easily have taken his story of these young men one of two ways. He could have glamorised the violence, which at the time of its release it was dismissed as doing, by those unwilling to take the time to watch it, obviously. The presence of N.W.A. star Ice Cube probably didn't help that perception, mm-hmm. as N.W.A.'s raps, full of righteous anger and polemic as they can be, do often glorify gangster life, and not just on a superficial level. But he didn't do that, and the violence is presented as a matter of fact. Alternatively, he could have made a preachy morality tale, but he avoided doing that also. Lawrence Fishburne's Furious could be seen as a preacher, particularly given that he is the singular father figure, a role conspicuous by its absence in the life of almost every other character in the film, save Trey. But the passionate Furious is also a realist, and simply tries his best to raise his own son and equip him with the tools and knowledge to survive in the world. While clearly he has compassion and concern for Ricky and Doughboy, he feels no responsibility. By refusing to preach, but also by refusing to accept that his characters are condemned by fate, that they are helpless victims of circumstance, Singleton made a profoundly powerful document. Violence, drugs and gangs are part of these young men's lives, but they need not be the defining part. In fact, while gang violence is at the heart of the tragedy of the film, for much of the rest life is, for want of a better word, mundane. Or everyday, which is perhaps the better word I am searching for. Because as people, the inhabitants of Crenshaw are little different to people elsewhere. They have the same hopes and dreams. They go to work, do their homework, play with friends, watch TV. Trey doesn't worry about being shot. He worries about his shirt looking nice or a girl will notice him. But there is always, always in the background, a violent menace. Something capable of upending the life of a whole family in moments and for no reason. Singleton condemns that state of affairs, but also refuses to entirely absolve the community of blame. Some of the problems are your own, therefore so too are the solutions. He offers no simple solutions himself, because there are none. But in not portraying the lives of his characters as relative to white people, and by not making simplistic distinctions, he offers the inhabitants of the hood agency, as well as culpability, and without cynicism too. This maturity can also be seen in the film's heartbreaking finale. Other filmmakers would be tempted to focus on the revenge aspect, and Doughboy's rage-filled retribution is given the time and weight that it deserves, but it's the moments before and after that are the most powerful. The abject grief of a family torn apart by a violent and senseless crime, 
and then the next morning. Doughboy may be impulsive, but he's not stupid, and he has the introspection and thoughtfulness that less well-written characters lack, and would have seen them simply consider Trey's actions as a betrayal. The characters are very rounded, and Trey and Doughboy's final conversation is strong stuff. Human and touching, even a little hopeful, and leads to the coda about the characters, horrendously inevitable as it may be, feeling like a gut punch. More than a quarter of a century on, Boys in Hood is still deeply resonant and relevant. Singleton's camera work is assured, and the film is full of attention to detail. He has also coaxed superb natural performances from his young cast, notably Ice Cube, and I'm not sure that anybody involved, except for the underutilised Angela Bassett, has ever done better work. And to think that a film this accomplished came from a 23-year-old first-time mm. writer and director is simply astonishing, as is the film. Yeah, I wouldn't add much to that, Drew. Um, I was a little bit worried. I haven't watched Boys in the Hood for, as you say, a quarter century now. Probably 20 years since I'd seen this, and I've always loved it, but it's been a long time. I only saw it upon its, not in the cinema, on its initial release, but on home video. Mm-hmm. And then again for this podcast, so that's a, yeah, so the best part of 25 years. And I was worried that it wouldn't have weathered all that well mm-hmm. in the time. As material of this nature tends to do, it tends to age quite quickly. I was worried I was going to look back on it and cringe a little bit at what the then, I guess, what does that make us then? 12, 13 year old me (laughs) made. Yeah, just beginning high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So about the 13 year old me made of it at the time. And I was not pleasantly surprised, but probably saddingly surprised. Saddingly, is that a word? (laughs) Saddingly. It is now. If it's not, it is now. I was sadly surprised actually at... I wasn't sad about the fact it remains a, a, a very well-made film and a very compelling piece of filmmaking, but saddened by actually how resonant the, the themes yeah, uh, still are. It. It's still relevant because yeah. things haven't changed, well, at least haven't changed enough. Yeah, I think it's quite tempting for us to take a step back, you know, and as close to the hood in question as we three late 30s white men from Scotland um, obviously Hard. have always been. Yeah. <laughs> I think we often look at the state of affairs uh, across the pond with our cousins and think that we've had, you know, we are now post-America's first black president and actually that uh, a lot of things have moved forward. And if anything, watching this film, I was struck by how wrong my my casual judgment on those sort of things are, actually, that probably we haven't moved forward at all. Um, Treading water, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, if we have moved forward, it's maybe in, you know, think of Obama's presidency more as a token gesture than some sort of great leap for for coloured people in America. But it is still a massively, massively compelling film, and I was surprised at just how fresh and undated uh, it actually still feels, and I don't Mm -hmm. really have a lot to add to what you... Say it is still fairly heartbreaking, actually, by the close of the movie. It's not a feel yeah, good. It's not a feel good film that you walk out of punching the air, certainly. And I also do like to remember that um, Ice Cube obviously did also appear in Triple X Two State of the Union. Um, <laughs> but no, it's a. It's a, a. I think for the time, you know, a groundbreaking piece of filmmaking. And yeah, when you think about it in context of first time twenty three year old writer director, as you say, Drew, an astonishing achievement on a scale. Um, I mean, it's a pity Singleton's never actually done anything as good since he's done the occasional good thing, like deep cover and things. But yeah, nothing to I, this level. I think if I truly believe there are people out there who are destined, who have one really great story in them, 
yeah, and who are it's destined not to common actually. Yeah, think. yeah, and I think who might struggle with you know adapting other people's material and aren't necessarily suited to the day to day job of being a director. And it's interesting to see how other people's careers have panned. I'm trying to think of the nearest analog there, but in terms of you know, in terms Michael of Samino maybe. Yeah, probably actually. <laughs> In terms of um, achievement, and especially in terms of filmmaking for for black writers and directors in, in Hollywood, I think you probably have to come forward to last year in Moonlight to find anything um, even as remotely as impactful mm-hmm. and as impressive a piece of filmmaking as, as this, especially from a first-time writer-director. Just pleasantly surprised by how well this has stood the test of time, but obviously not pleasantly surprised by actually how relevant it still remains. I think that's actually quite a condemnation of where we're at as a as a species. Sadly so. I would just be echoing everything you said there. Hadn't actually seen this until preparing for this podcast. Um, really? Another, another subtext behind these podcast episodes is just me getting <laughs> keeping, around to... Keeping in mind we all managed to avoid <laughs> Chinatown for 30 years. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, we're not best placed to judge, I guess, being three frighteningly white men in a ludicrously white society, but uh, I can only imagine the, uh, the, the positive impact of having this sort of representation on screen for the black community in America must have had at the time and continues to be so now not that it's sadly mm-hmm. improved all that much in the time but uh, even just seeing a little bit of representation was uh, better than nothing and this is certainly a very powerful first step along that that road and powerful document tremendous story lots of great performances uh, the only thing I, the only thing it sort of didn't sit quite right with me was the, the sort of coda being in text format at the end it seemed a bit yeah, I'd quibble with that, but that's that is a very minor thing in a film that is otherwise excellent. That, I don't understand that didn't bother me at all, which I, I said it that just felt like it was more the the content of that that bothered me because it just felt like a gut punch. Like, mm. yeah, that it, it, that rings perfectly true with what happened, but it's still horrible. And you find out what happened to Doughboy. Well, it did. I already knew that was going to happen to Doughboy because it pretty much said it in that previous scene, mm-hmm. and just having it been written as text I, seems cheap you've either already said that or you should show it don't write it on the screen that's not how a film works but that's a really minor point and certainly not worth getting hung up over uh, when the rest of the film is so damned good and as you say all the principles probably never been better mm-hmm. uh, and that's saying something for some of their careers uh, particularly Larry Fishburne yeah, highly recommended. Yes, I've certainly done myself a disservice by not watching mm. it sooner. Mm-hmm. I think the only thing I would add to that, if, from anything that I have, other than my ability to assess films objectively, um, having improved over the years since I first saw this film, is that, and again, at the risk of boring everyone to death, my perception of a great many topics and a great many things has altered massively since I became a parent. And what I would say about watching something like Boys in the Hood now, I've I've never been into space and flown around a black hole, but I still, like Matthew McConaughey <laughs> did, but I ball my eyes out at Interstellar. <laughs> um, <laughs> as a parent, when I watch something like this now, I think, despite obviously how far removed my own situation is um, analogous to the, the characters in this movie, and I'm not really at risk where I am of my children growing up to become gang members um, <laughs> and getting into, you know, uh, gunfights with similarly aged children in, in the streets. I'm, I'm not at risk of that. I'm in a very privileged position in that respect. But when I watched Boys in the Hood this time round, it terrified me more than any horror movie that I happen to have watched in recent memory. <laughs> um, uh, yes, so I would, I would add that. Yeah, so I don't why did I mention Deep Cover earlier. 
John Sickle didn't do that. I, I did wonder when you it. said that, but yes, I, I think the longest fish bone connection. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so just I mean, you can. Uh, that's what not, was that's... missing from Boys and Hood. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> I, I'm struggling to think, like Hubert Craig, of another filmmaker. I'm sure there are lots that are just not occurring to me, but it certainly happens a lot with novels. I find that somebody has one good story in them, mm. and then never really has anything to follow up with. And that's maybe the case with Singleton, um, which mm. is a pity because clearly, technically, as well as in terms of story, he had the chops from the beginning here. Mm-hmm. It's just it's interesting to compare him to Spike Lee at the time too, because Spike Lee was his mentor had something of a hero thing and actually helped him get his films made when he was working at USC or studying at USC but it's nice there's a bit of a contrast to Spike Lee's films too. Spike Lee's films are kind of they're theatrical mm. um, especially as uh, like do the right thing it's kind of hyper real almost or at least it's like the saturation's turned up to 11 on them mm-hmm. and they are they are quite angry I mean for good reasons but they are quite angry mm. Whereas Boys in the Hood by John Silkerton is a bit more matter of fact, makes it sound mundane. And it's not what I mean by that, but no. it's more like yeah, these are, this is how life is. And it's, it's a bit more, it it's maybe a bit more removed. Is it fair to say a bit more emotionally removed from the subject matter than perhaps Spike Lee? Um, yeah, I think not so. 100% it's, accurate, but you know what I mean by that? Yes, it's not, not that there's no emotion rather yeah. than that. It's it's slightly more documentarian. It feels like yeah, as as opposed seen. to a lot of uh, Lee's works. We've just spoken about the fact that I've only ever seen one Spike Lee joint. But from what I understand of his output, I would put it that Spike Lee's works are probably more polemic. They can be. I mean, mm. I've not seen all of them, but certainly do the right thing. It's do the right thing's an angry film, mm. and having only just as I said to you, like having only just seen it for the first time recently. I'm still not quite sure what to make of it, but immediately it's an angrier film. This is, it does feel a bit more documentary and it's more, it's not like Singleton doesn't have compassion for his mm. people, but rather it doesn't feel the need to kind of focus on it. It's like, here, here's what life is like for these young men growing up without a, role, a male role model, which is a, a large theme of this film. The fact that there's a lot of single parent families led by women and not that that's not a good upbringing for something. There's lots of people in that situation, but that, it's about the fate of young men mm-hmm. in this. And it, he seems to like more just be saying, right, here's how things are. Mm-hmm. And then let you pick everything up yourself rather than trying to particularly put the words in their mouth or anything. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I'm making my point well, but I hope you understand what I mean. I know what you mean. Certainly the, the way the culture is presented here and in Moonlight as well, it's a fairly macho culture and mm-hmm. you know, not having yeah. the male role models to... Uh, Perhaps guide you through that as maybe giving you a bit of a not the best steer into the into navigating oh, oh, yes, those waters. Being trapped in a cascading feedback loop of testosterone yeah. is not a good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's it. And um, because you have it's a, f- a need to prove your machismo or something mm-hmm. because that's what everybody else is lacking. A figure like Furious, who he is, he's quite strict, but he's not without compassion, and he does want the best for his son, and he's mm-hmm. tries to put limits on it and teach him the right thing. And whereas the other kids are somewhat I mean again it's, it's something not necessarily not having a male role model but just I don't know we have one person who's like overwhelmed Doughboy's uh, mother or something and then you have people feeling like oh there's other people in the street and then they, they show a gun at you and then you have to do that back to keep your credibility that sort of thing and it's again it's, it's a horrible vicious circle aye, aye. 
I'm depressed there, but for the <laughs> grace of the flying spaghetti monster. Yes, yeah. we are. We are fortunate, but we are still human and compassionate, so we appreciate a lot of this film, fortunately. Or unfortunately, supposing, depending on your point of view. Great film, though, eh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can we all okay. have a, take a five-minute crying break, please? <laughs> Real men don't cry. Real men go on to talk about LA Confidential. Damn right. I'm not the type of man who'd cry at a film about spacemen, so I'll talk about LA Confidential. Uh, I was completely unaware until researching this episode that Curtis Hansen had been playing his trade as director since the early 70s, and I'd wager I'm uh, not the only one out there. Some of his earlier works are certainly a little more obscure, but I'm willing to bet that, also like me, you've perhaps unknowingly watched one or two of his early 90s efforts, such as Bad Influence and The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Hand That Rocks the Cradle I've certainly seen. Mm. Wonder Boys and 8 Mile 2, but obviously those are post-Ali Confidential. This seems to be the point at which Hansen found his stride, and it serves as a fitting precursor to perhaps his best-known and most well-received works, the consecutive triple whammy of Ali Confidential, Wonder Boys and 8 Mile. The first of those movies is the one that concerns us today, based on James Elroy's novel, part of his revered LA Quartet, and scripted by Brian Helgeland, a screenwriter whose work has varied wildly in quality from excellent to the sin eater, <laughs> aka the order. <laughs> Don't thank you for reminding us of that, and that was before Heath Ledger found his stride, wasn't it? Yeah, thank you IMDB for reminding me of that yesterday. <laughs> LA Confidential is uh, not yesterday, sorry, Tuesday. LA Confidential, not that that matters to our listeners, I suppose. Thanks for the clarification. <laughs> yes. We'll note that in our journals. Oh my god, <laughs> I've given myself the hiccups. Right, let's see if I can navigate this. LA Confidential is a tale of murder and deception, both within and without the LAPD. Set against the backdrop of mid to late 50s Hollywood. Surely in the running for the title of most hedonistic time and place in living memory. The power vacuum left by the eventual apprehension of notorious gangster Mickey Cohen, see the considerably less worthy but offset by presence of Ryan Gosling gangster squad, was undoubtedly going to... (laughs) Sean Penn gets punched repeatedly in the face in that film, so therefore it's brilliant. (laughs) Do you know what? Actually, yeah, I'm going to go Paul Ross on this biatch and say five stars. (laughs) Gangster squad. Sean Penn gets punched in the face. Six out of five. (laughs) Yes, sorry, it was undoubtedly going to be filled, but few were probably expecting that elements within the LAPD would be the ones to make the play. As we'll soon find out, however, nobody is to be trusted, and sometimes the one you trust the least will be the only one you can count on. A massacre at All Night Cafe The Night Owl sets things in motion here, with a shotgun-wielding gang perpetrating what at first appears to be a violent robbery-turned-tragedy. A group of young black men are promptly fingered for the deed, and after breaking out of police custody, their own lives are brought to an equally brutal end by the LAPD. It soon becomes apparent, however, that this narrative is just a little too neat, and that officers within the force, some of them disturbingly high-ranking, may actually be behind what turns out to have been not a robbery, but a heroin deal gone sour. Unravelling this mess are a trio of wildly divergent characters within the LAPD. Guy Pierce is Ed Exley, a junior officer with unswerving moral conviction and a burning desire to best his father's record of having reached Detective Sergeant by the age of 33. Exley has few fans within the force, with a reputation for unflinching honesty that understandably causes issues for some of his less ethical colleagues. Kevin Spacey portrays Jack Vincennes, a showboater who loves the Hollywood glamour afforded him by his role as technical advisor to the popular TV show Badge of Honour, and whose relationship with Sid Hudgens, Danny DeVito, editor of salubrious LA gossip magazine Hush Hush, places him very much at odds with Exley. 
Likewise, but for very different reasons, our unlikely trio is rounded out by Bud White, Russell Crowe. A boiling vein of testosterone with brass knuckles, a hatred of wife beaters, and a dead partner at the Night Owl, whom Exley set up for a fall just hours before. A web so tangled as the events at the Night Owl is going to need three sets of hands to unravel, but when the men those hands belong to have at best disdain for each other, at worst an open violent hatred, it's going to be a miracle if anyone survives in order to get to the bottom of it. And what starts out as a fairly routine period glamour piece that seems to want to evangelise as much as stylize its setting and central characters does in fact develop into something all the more satisfying for each layer of Hollywood veneer it gradually strips away. In exposing the terrible human flaws of greed, vanity and corruption that lay beneath the surface of pretty much anything built on money, Hansen and Helgeland turn what could have been an utterly shallow exercise in style and set dressing, again, see Gangster Squad, into something altogether more satisfying. <coughs> in refusing to concede to any notions of casual redemption, LA Confidential goes about its business in a way that is more about the cooperation of grudging necessity with those who make it to the end vindicated but quite literally broken. It's a refreshing change to the usual tale of daring do and guns ablazing macho antics one might otherwise expect. Again, see Gangster Squad. And it oh, is really? aided no end by a main cast. Don't see Gangster Squad. Yeah. <laughs> We're joking. <laughs> it is aided no end by a main cast composed entirely of stars in the Ascendant, backed up by fantastic supporting turns from DeVito, James Cromwell, Kim Basinger, and Ron Rifkin. Hell, when you have David Strathairn as a side character knocking about in a smoking jacket, you have to be on to a winner. Basinger in particular deserves attention for a performance that evades stereotype almost against the laws of physics, turning in a character as complex as any of her male counterparts in a movie dominated by testosterone, though the lack of overt showboating by any of the male leads is noteworthy in itself. Surprisingly fresh now as it was 20 years ago, LA Confidential remains a standout in the genre and is very much worth a revisit. Uh, and I must apologise because partway through writing that, I completely lost my train of thought, and there endeth my assessment. <laughs> but there you go. I was gratefully afeared that actually when you were speaking about one film that let you down terribly in here, Drew, that you were going to you were going to say Helly Confidential because again, it's been a good ten, twelve years since I last watched this, and I was pleasantly surprised by how well uh, I felt it held up. Yeah, I had probably about the same length of time since I think. Whenever it was first available on DVD was the last time I watched it. Oh, which God. is probably about that sort of time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that and- was the same. I, uh, it's, I'd seen it before, but I'd seen it before so long ago I couldn't really remember any of it. Yeah, so. yeah. I, certainly, yeah, I, I certainly hadn't remembered Kevin Spacey's last scene. No, I, I didn't remember that either. I, I didn't remember a lot of the details. I remembered very much, very strongly the tone mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, and the look of it and that... That was really pleasing, but the actual or the details of the plot, I mm-hmm. didn't remember at all. And I was very pleased to find that I was engaged, um, engaged, yeah, mm-hmm. engaged is the word, but very much taken by it again on this um, review, which is probably third or fourth time I've seen this film now, I think. Because I, I watched it when it came out, then on video, then on DVD, I guess, and then now. And I was a bit concerned about it actually because. I don't think Kim Basinger's a very good actor mm. at all. And I was a bit concerned about going back to this. Like, I've never really liked how much I've seen. I mean, maybe some of her best roles actually come with Hanson because as Eminem's mother in mm-hmm. 8 Mile, mm-hmm. she's quite compelling. But this is her career best performance comfortably. Was she Oscar nominated for supporting actress for this, if I remember? Or am I making that up? That sounds right. I thought possibly even one. I mean, I, I know she was well regarded in this, and rightly so. And because I was just 
for a podcast that we recorded not long ago. Yeah, best actress in a supporting role, Kim Basinger. Yeah, one winner. Yeah, yes, I thought so. Yeah, yeah, for a podcast. I mean, it's a completely different type of film, but a podcast we recorded just recently on TV comedy adaptations, and she's in Wayne's World too. Oh God, I forgot. She's that. just she's truly awful in that, and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm like most of the things I've seen her in, she's been pretty awful. I mean, she's awful in Batman and. I mean, I don't really rate her much, and then I'm think think that a lot of her reputation comes from this film. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's understandable because she's yeah. really good in this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but so is basically everybody. It's but it's hard to pick the weakest link, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't really know if there is a weak link because even like Danny DeVito, because he's got such a strong sort of comedy connection, you think mm. maybe he'd be the person that stands out. His his card's kind of shifty and yeah. dodgy, and, but it works for the most part, I think. If you put a gun to my head, I think I would say James Cromwell because I've seen that him. That was just thinking. Yeah, actually, I've seen yeah. him do that kind of James Cromwell. He's doing the James Cromwell thing that I've seen him do occasionally, but it, it's by no means egregious in this instance. He's still yes, it's all degrees, isn't it? If you had to put a gun to my head, I'd say he is the weakest, but he in this movie is still better than most other people in most other movies. Yes, and th- this is this is good James Cromwell, not the black ball James Cromwell. If anybody <laughs> happens to remember that particular <laughs> oh turd, I would never <laughs> have thought of that movie ever again in my life if you hadn't just mentioned it now yes um, damn this you this is the way unfortunately you know how good my memory is so i, I tend to remember these things oh um, you son of a bitch yes, this james cromwell for some reason playing an englishman in a comedy about crown green bowling with paul k this is the strangest film that exists if you want to see the most annoying profile picture of all time go on imdb and look at james cromwell's is it the one with him in the black t-shirt mm, i dare to be an artist <laughs> And that hat. Oh, that hat. That hat makes me want to punch him. Uh, <laughs> that hat makes me want to fold him into that hat. I think I think the worst part is the sort of semi-selective colour thing that's mm-hmm. going on there. Yeah, so they're like, trying oh, to you're... desperately draw attention to the hat, yeah. despite your it being day, the worst hat. first day using Photoshop and you did this. <laughs> I see him wearing that hat and really, really I want to take out one of the warm tortillas that's clearly in it and then punch him in the face. <laughs> Stop wasting tortillas, Cromwell. Uh, <laughs> There's kids yeah, in Africa who haven't even seen a warm tortilla. It's a really good film. Um, <laughs> to get back to that, actual point we're talking about here, and not John James Cromwell's terrible uh, IMDb profile pictures. Uh, I think as a noir, it's not as successful as Chinatown. Mm. But there's not much between them. It's a very successful film. It shows the seedy underbelly mm. of Los Angeles. Um, I think, is it fair to say, because, and I think my assessment of that would be because of the subject matter, it's necessarily a little bit more glossy than something like Chinatown. Maybe, and because it does actually involve actual Hollywood too, mm. and you, uh, Kevin Spacey's character too, there's something mm. of that. I mean, the only thing I don't like about this film, and it's it's more just because I don't like this thing in real life, and this film, maybe just reflecting it, but it's the whole notion of the police officers hating people who are informing them, they're calling them rats and stuff. And I just, I despise with every fibre of my being dirty police officers. I think they should basically burned alive. Um, and that trend you get <laughs> films of, oh no, <laughs> Ed Exley is like, oh, he's this terrible person because he's um, informing on people and stuff. And I was like, well, no, how about a police officer actually involved, being a police officer involved, upholding the law? Wouldn't that be nice? And that's, that's more just a personal beef I have with dirty cops rather than mm. it being a problem with this film. It's just this film reflects that particular trope in movies of, oh, he's the bad guy, he's the outsider. I'm like, well, why should he be? Try not being a dirty cop. You know, that would be nice. 
Um, <laughs> and maybe it's just so bad here because almost everybody seems to be. Mm. But it's got a really compelling central mystery. I mean, that, that's the one upside, I guess, to having waited so long to watch it again is because you tend to forget the details. Mm. So mm. you can enjoy the mystery again, I, I think. On a very quick rewatch, then it's going to lose quite a bit because you know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting what you say about Exley's ca- um the character of Exley there, Drew. I feel like, if I think about it, I feel like the fact that he is obviously morally very committed to his job and his dislike for dirty cop stuff, I think that mm-hmm. almost would have been enough for that character. I almost feel like the career animal in him was an aspect of that character that was added because I want to say it feels like that was almost shoehorned in there because it feels like, well, he still has to have some kind of a flaw. Does that make sense? I don't, uh, yeah, I don't. I know what you mean. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure, but yes, mm. I understand. But it's like, does he have to be ambitious and righteous? Could he not? Could he not just have been righteous? Yeah. And think um, that maybe he should, feels like he should rise because he's like not being dirty or something. Yeah. I mean, again, we're talking fairly minor flaws when the rest of it is so good yeah. it has a one of the best ensemble casts i can think of mm-hmm. only the likes of something like tinker taylor soldier spy has this sort of consistent level of awesome cast yeah um, including from people you wouldn't expect it from like kim basinger mm-hmm. and it's definitely not the favorite of the la films we were we're covering tonight but also not the one that i was thinking was a real stinker craig because obviously that was less than zero so you never had to be afraid that it was <laughs> that was less than zero slash the zero effect <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah again this is very much like boys in hood i was kind of worried that i would come back to this and i would find that it hadn't aged all that well but mm-hmm. uh, it, it really has Al- yeah. almost timeless which seems like a weird thing to say about a period piece but also but i think because it is a period piece mm. um like chinatown too that it does feel like it could have been made i mean Obviously, you know that the film stock would look different mm-hmm. and stuff, but it does feel like it could have been made contemporaneously, mm-hmm. that it could be from that time period, and because it's so well made, mm-hmm. and that makes a, a big difference. It's why it feels... Timeless is a kind of strange word, but yes, I, I do get what you mean with that, that it's, it doesn't feel like it's aged all that much like a lot of other films from that time have done. Indeed. Yeah, and I would just be echoing everything you say there. Tremendous cast, interesting story, really enjoyed uh, revisiting it. And it's, I think, interesting to see that James Elroy's original work uh, this is based on mm. is quite dense and adapting it seems to be difficult. That seems to be a, a common trend because you know, just comparing this, for example, with The Black Dahlia from not all that long mm. after... Which and was that awful, was a third. Actually. Yeah. Yes. Um, which obviously had similar stylistics, but just really did not work on any level. Now that's a film um, that as opposed even, to this, which really does. A film that even Scarlett Johansson in underwear couldn't save for me as a, uh, <laughs> <laughs> as a young man. So. Well, a wonderfully low bar you've set there, Drew. <laughs> yeah, it failed. It failed to reach it. Just for what it's worth, I figured it'd be interesting to put this and uh, Chinatown up against each other in a, a Google Plus poll from the uh, the movies group over there, uh, a showdown between the two. And of the 69 people that voted, uh, LA Confidential got a slight edge with 54% of the vote mm. compared to 46% of Chinatown, which is not the way I would go. But, I mean, at this point, it is, uh, yeah, again, but- sliding cigarette papers between them. Mm-hmm. They're both tremendous films, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people were saying, well, uh, why would I want to choose between these also, two Also, I'm wondering films? how many more people yeah. will have seen LA Confidential and have seen yeah. Chinatown. Mm-hmm. 
quite possibly yes. skewing the numbers. Yeah, likewise, I would I would go for Chinatown, but yes, absolutely, cigarette paper territory. Saying it's not our favourite film of this podcast, but that's only because it's got some very, very strong competition. It's only because this podcast contains the second best film made in the 80s. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> I think for Labyrinth, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> And of the LA films, I prefer Boys in Hood and Chinatown, but there's not so much beyond it. This is a very, very good film. It's very much not less than zero, which is nice. Hmm. <laughs> so we'll round things off today with The Limey, of course, Steven Soderbergh's film, uh, and in which we see Terence Stamps Wilson, who is a walking caricature of an East End gangster, released from a stretch at Her Majesty's Pleasure, and he immediately hops on a plane to Los Angeles to investigate the death of his daughter Jenny, played by Melissa George. It's been ruled an accidental death in a car crash, but Wilson thinks that foul play is afoot. Given the lay of the land by two of Jenny's friends, Eduardo, Louise Guzman, and Elaine, Leslie Ann Warren, both of whom pass Wilson's instinct-based lie detector test, his suspicion falls on the suspiciously named Terry Valentine, played by Peter Vonda, a suspicious record producer who's suspiciously Jenny's ex-boyfriend. And rightly so, as it happens, as we find out over the course of the piece that Valentine has links to drug trafficking, with Wilson pulling on these threads and violently working his way through the lower-level goons as he searches for some proof of Valentine's guilt. The LA police seem to view this as an opportunity to rid themselves of some criminals and stay on the sidelines, so Valentine's head of security, Avery, Barry Newman, hires a hitman, Stacy, played by Nicky Cat, to take care of Wilson. All this leading to an appropriately bloody resolution. Now, I think I like the limey a lot more than I'll be able to adequately explain, but I suppose I'll have to give it a shot. It's a strange film on a few levels, and it's a credit to all involved that it hangs together this well. To wit, narratively, there's not a great deal to this film, and the driving force of the story is pretty bare bones. Sometimes it feels as if you took out most of the scenes that are, at heart, a reason to have Americans being confused by cockney rhyming <laughs> slang, this film would be about half an hour long. Even so, had this been approached conventionally by the recently de-retired Steven Soderbergh, well, there's enough talent in front of the character that I'm sure it would be watchable but unremarkable. However, it's far from conventional, and is surely the most melancholic, wistful, roaring rampages of revenge committed to film, with frequent cuts to footage from one of Stamp's earliest films, along with his regretful narrative and an editing style that's purposely disorienting your sense of time and to a lesser degree place, it's bringing to the fore a character who's spending some time taking stock of his life, which contrasts quite sharply to the bulk of the rest of the film, where Wilson has a clarity of purpose and a drive that's quite something to behold. It may well be Stamp's finest hour, inhabiting a powerful character that's much more empathetic and engaging than the stock character that he may appear on first glance. Stamp may forever be remembered as General Zod, but Wilson may be more deserving of the honour. There's almost as interesting a character on the other side of the coin, with Peter Fonda's dawning realisation that he's gone from in over his head to in immediate existential danger over the beast being a joy to watch. It's a nice inversion, with Wilson being out of his comfort zone geographically but well versed in the work at hand, and Valentine being quite the opposite. The rest of the supporting cast do well, particularly Guzman and Warren, but it's hard not to be overshadowed by Stamp given the spotlight is rightly on him for the bulk of the film. It's in the title, after all. I suppose, in the final analysis, I like The Limey because it's a thriller that's taking a very different, possibly unique, approach to the way that it tells its story. Different enough to be interesting, while familiar enough to maintain the genre's appeal. It's a mystery to me why this didn't go over with the mass market on release. I suppose it was perceived as too arty, but it very much is not. 
if somehow you've missed this, it's worth putting pretty high up on your catch-up list. I would disagree. You don't like Limey? No, I do not like the Limey. This is... I'd heard good things about it, and this is in fact the first time that I'd seen it, preparing for this podcast. Hmm. And it kind of rubbed me the wrong way from the first scene. First one, and it's weird, Turnstamp was raised in the East End of London before it moved into the West End, somewhere West Ham. And I don't know whether maybe he lost his actual Cockney-ish that's a East End accent when he went to drama school, but all of his his accent in this film felt really forced, which took me out from the start. I mean, maybe that's wrong, but it felt it didn't feel natural to me that accent at all. Then there's the thing you mentioned, Scott, about the film having so many bits of many so many scenes that involved people not understanding the Cockney rhyming slang. And I despise Cockney rhyming slang anyway. But just when it's an entire film full of oh, what's this strange Englishman saying? And I, I, simply didn't care and I wanted all of those bits to stop and they didn't stop and finally it's and I just found I didn't really care about any of the characters in it and if you don't engage with the characters there's not a lot you can do and I just I didn't they were more just people that were there for me I don't like Peter Fonda a great deal actually he he is not a patch in the actor his father was and he doesn't it's annoying because he sounds so like his father. And it's like, but you look sound like a cheap knockoff of the great um, Henry Fonda. <laughs> You're a cheap knockoff of your dad. <laughs> a line I look forward to using in future with my own son. <laughs> Steven Soderbergh is, is so put on and off for me. Being able. Hot and cold in him, yeah. Mm. And this is definitely for me one of his lesser films. And it just seemed tailor-made to irritate me. Because there's that, that the constant talk of the like, the Cockney rhyme slang, which is, I hate it. Anyway, I've never liked it. It's, most of them just sound so stupid, those phrases. But when you have half of your film involved with him saying these things, like, ha ha, listen to this strange Englishman, what's he saying? We don't understand it. Like, yeah. And then, obviously, it's a deliberate choice, but that editing and of him, like, talking to someone and then suddenly he's in a different place, talking to them, but carries on the same conversation. And I hated it. I just did not get on with that choice at all i mean it's not like it's a bad film it's just i didn't care about anybody in it and i kind of was bored by it so you hate it for all the reason that i like it then more or less <laughs> i'm perhaps somewhere in the middle of you two guys then i used to be incredibly fond of it but for some of the reasons that drew has just stated it has somewhat lost its sheen for me in recent years mm. i think this was the, again this is probably the first time in when did this come out 1999. Yes, yeah, so it's probably about the first time in the best part of ten years that I've that I've watched the Limey, and I had I did have a great deal of affection for it previously, but some of it has worn off. I do, I, like you say, Drew, it does the whole thing about explaining the Cockney rhyming slam reeks of a lack of sophistication that is disappointing for Soderbergh, who at least if it doesn't always work or if he doesn't always sell it, at least usually outside of his multiplex fare you know, has pretenses towards sophistication. Um, I'd feel frontal, but yes. Exactly, yes. An an exercise in supposed sophistication that falls flat on its face, I would argue. Um, There's still stuff I like about it. I I like some of the experimental stuff. There's enough of of, uh, early Soderbergh in there, but it's sort of the use of the early footage of Terrence Stamp from another movie where he's singing that Nilsson song, uh, Mm -hmm. Yellow is the Colour. But I think it is uh, sort of inserted. It's that Donovan song. Donovan, sorry, not Nelson. Donovan. Uh, I like little bits like that about it, but it does. In recent years, I have tended more towards maybe more towards Drew's argument. And there are certainly 
there are moments that I like, some of which are actually less to do with acting, it's more just to do with the script. And when he, Liam from the Big Lebowski, when he throws him over the balcony. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, when, when Liam goes over the balcony, that's fantastic. It's so matter of fact, isn't it? Yeah. And then the scene with Turnstap and Bill Duke, I like a lot. Mm. Because it's it's kind of quite different from how interactions with law enforcement officials work. And you're never mm. quite sure what's going on there. And is Bill Duke completely dirty or is he just doing it to... Is he doing it for him? And like that's the idea. It's like he's trying to get money, but also, man, is he just trying to do this heroin bust? Or and it's just there's kind of some interesting things there and interesting scenes. But as a whole, for me, the film, I just I didn't care about anybody. Is the main problem. Mm. I felt like Bill Duke was just kind of rewarming his character from payback, uh, <laughs> almost. But you're right, a Peter Fonda just shouldn't be allowed in front of a camera, in my opinion. Which, given the work his father did, one can only assume. He's, yeah, got his, he's got his foot in the door through nepotism because I don't see any evidence of acting talent in any of the sort of few films that I've I've, uh, I've seen him in. I it's so long since I've seen Easy Rider. I may as well not have seen it. I remember nothing about it. Yeah, there's like Henry Fonda. It was astonishing. Twelve Angry Men, one of my all time favorite films, which I covered in our very first podcast. Yeah. And Once Upon a Time in the West, one of mine. Once Upon a Time in the West. Yes, um, he's has played against type two in that film. Yeah. Henry Fonda is is fantastic, and Once Upon a Time in the West is such a good film. And then Peter Fonda, it's like it's annoying because he looks a bit like he's that and his voice is so similar yeah and it can, that can irritate me the only time i can remember liking peter fonda was when he was the peyote smoking hippie in grand theft auto san andreas <laughs> because i cannot remember a film performance where i've liked him <laughs> he is just like a turkish knockoff a turkish market knockoff of his dad isn't he <laughs> he's henry fonda's cornish cousin yeah <laughs> Or his son. <laughs> I don't know. That's it. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I, I don't rate Peter Fonda at all. I mean, his sister can act pretty well in some things. In 95, Swing Swing, and on Golden Pond, where she was acting with her father, but Peter Fonda, not so much. Hmm. I'd still rather watch The Limey than Zero Effect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Um, one of these is at least a, a vaguely competent film with person. You might care at some point about anybody that's in it, whereas like, the. Um, Oh, Lesson Zero and or the Zero yeah, Effect. You see, you see what I did there. You see what I did yeah. there. <laughs> You've now confused me too. I don't know which film we're talking about anymore. <laughs> oh, dear. Right, we'll, I think, round things off with some feedback from the old Twitters. Oh, uh, some yes. of it actually being old. Uh, yes. So if you've forgotten your tweeted these, it's probably because some of them are coming from uh, the back end of April. <laughs> yes. So, uh, at Blake Wrights on Twitter, Perpetual Dumb Machine, uh, one of the I'm the Host uh, podcast folks. Chinatown. Forget it. It's Chinatown. Uh, stole my outro line <laughs> Confidential didn't leave an impression for whatever reason possibly because I was only watching it to give context to Ellie Noir something else that didn't leave much of an impression is Ellie Noir is also yeah. not a good video game no it's not yeah, terrible driving section as I seem to recall it's terrible every section my previous work on a podcast yes. called the Game Collection Podcast in which I talked at length about how much I did not like Ellie Noir <laughs> and uh, Lawrence Fishburne gives one of my favourite movie dad performances in Boys and Hood which I thought was pretty solid all round certainly agree with that John Page at Jurassic Pug on Twitter add Escape to Ellie from the list and then we'll talk Ah, but well, that's a sequel. Escape from New York's a classic. That's what you really need to talk We about. may get round to Escape from LA at some point. There's yes. a number of angles you can attach yes. that. Either you're, from, on your, you're on your either. own there. I've seen Escape to LA and I won't be watching it yeah. again. 
that's either going to fit into either a Carpenter podcast or a podcast on just wildly disappointing sequels. Yes, I think definitely this, <laughs> this latter would be a good home for it. No, we should do a podcast about great CG sharks. <laughs> yes. Uh, also, we have feedback from our friend Matt Toller, at M Toller on Twitter, who said that Ellie Confidential is on my short Flawless Films list. Exley's reaction to Smith asking about Tomasi is among my favourite single shots of all time. And also, he says, no Predator 2. Well, as you know, Matt, by now we, we have covered Predator 2 um, <laughs> very recently. So, so the quintessential Gary Busey and tinfoil <laughs> movie. There's no, there's no stopping what can't be stopped, Matt. <laughs> yes, uh, Humfredo, at Humfredo on Twitter. Heat is the quintessential early 90s movie. My dad lived there at a the time and it captured perfectly the smog and rudeness, also collateral. Well, we'll certainly cover Heat and LA Takedown in our next podcast yep. as a compare and contrast. So we'll look forward to talking about that quite soon. Collateral, I do love quite a lot. That's Collateral, a, I really that's like a very good shout. Probably my favourite Michael Mann film. Are you on yeah. drugs? Michael Mann's output for me is not as great as if. I don't think it's as great as everybody else thinks it is. I do like Collateral a lot. Yeah, I don't. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think. Uh, yeah, necessarily. Um, the majority of his output has been fantastic, but I'd argue uh, Heat is an almost flawless film, and I am baffled that you would put Collateral before Heat, but we will talk about that in another time. Okay, I, I guess this was just his list of favourite films set in LA, but um, a tweet from Stephen Nelson, at Scott's Actor on Twitter, who just um, gave us a list of films. Again, as I say, guessing that he's his favourite LA films. Nightcrawler, which is superb, yeah. and clearly the success of The Taxi Driver, I think Nightcrawler is superb. Yeah. Mulholland Drive, yeah. Craig and I sell both in our super. I think Scott thinks it's pretty good as well. Um, mm-hmm. The Big Lebowski, uh, yes, obviously one of my all-time yes. favorite films. Boogie Nights, yeah. Which I did like. I have not seen Boogie Nights in a long time, though, so I I can't really speak strongly about it. I remember liking it a lot, but it's such a long mm-hmm. time since I've seen it. Well, I mean, I think we did discuss those last three films on our best uh, or favourite films podcast. Yeah, Mahal and Big Lebowski, yeah. 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 Uh, but Boogie Nights too as well, wasn't it? Wasn't that oh. one? Yours, Craig? Boogie Nights was, Boogie Nights was one of mine. It's, yeah. my, yeah. it's okay. my favourite P.T. Anderson movie. Um, Swingers? And <laughs> once again, Predator 2. What is wrong with you people? <laughs> Predator 2 is terrible. I know. Well, it's I, one of those films that everyone I know uh, says about how fantastic, but how much they love Predator 2. And I'm like, am I taking crazy well, pills, man? It's terrible. Scott does. I don't. So not everybody you know, Craig. Oh. <laughs> um, and and curiously, this, this is a surprise. The Sylvester Stallone film, Cobra. I have no recollection if I've seen Cobra or not. All I can remember is the ZX Spectrum game from it from back yeah. in the day. Which was a, Can I a just say, Steve, Mr. Mr. Nelson, Stephen, if uh, I hope you're not listing Cobra as, as one of your favourite movies. If I if if you are, what I will say is that bad taste in movies is a disease. You are not <laughs> the cure. <laughs> <laughs> Cobra's got its charms. Cobra's got. Its, I thought I went through a phase. I didn't. I give away a copy of an iTunes copy of Cobra to someone a while back because I sat and watched it. I had a drink and watched it. I got progressively drunk and watched Cobra for the first time ever and found it so riotously funny that I wanted other people to be able to see it. And I think I gifted someone a code for it on iTunes or something on on Twitter so that I could share the joy. The only thing I remember about Cobra is that Stallone's name was so prominent on the poster that for for pretty much most of my life until I yeah. remembered it existed again, I thought it was called Stallone Cobra because his name... <laughs> All those posters, that red poster with him in the, um, in the, wearing the black, and all the posters were just like, Stallone, Cobra, and it was so prominent. I thought, I'm, having seen it when I was like 10 or something the first time, I'm pretty I, sure. I thought that was the, the 
film's title. I'm pretty sure I used first on Twitter for a good few weeks. I used a picture of him in his shades with the chewing the matchstick as my profile picture, and then yeah. immediately thereafter, I because was Cobra was it George Peakers Matos or someone like that who directed it. I know it's a directorial it. treat I mean early in there's a thing where cut to music it just randomly cuts to like a close up shot of a toy robot and uh, I used the toy robot <laughs> as you do that's my profile picture for a long long time as well it's just ridiculous movie oh Stephen yes. please tell me please tell me it's George so. P. Comatose it was yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> George P. Comatose see what you did there I'm hoping I'm hoping the inclusion of Cobra was ironic there Stephen oh dear that was some good feedback, though. I will not finish. I've got a couple more recent ones from <laughs> from from not April. <laughs> Another one from Stephen Nelson yeah. saying that Chinatown is a Hollywood classic with modern day relevancy in the subject matter, i.e., the California Water Wars, not the other thing. Yes, um, and then also yes, no retraction chopper, on Cobra. No exploding helicopter <laughs> at Chopper Fireball. It early confidential is beautifully shot, acted, and scripted, but it gives up all its secrets on a first viewing. There's little reward on rewatch. Clearly, the secret is to wait for about fifteen years between watching it yeah. to the point you forget <laughs> everything. <laughs> you know, I forgot that happened to Kevin Spacey. <laughs> right, that's that's quite enough about Ellie. I think at least for ten days until we start talking about Heat and Ellie takedown, as previously mentioned. So yes, look, look forward to that. Uh, until then, if you want to give us a, in touch either on that or any of the other subjects we have mentioned today, please do so. You can do so on Twitters, that's at Fuds on Film, on email at podcast at Fuds on Film, or through Facebook at facebook.com slash Fuds on Film. It's easy, just do it. We'll be back with you in 10 days, but until then, take care of yourself and each other. I've been Scott Morris, and I'm saying goodnight. I'm sure that Drew Tavendale and Greg Eastman will too. Mm. Forget it, Scott, it's China. I decided earlier to use that. I'm still going to use Can I say thank you for buying me for five pounds? <laughs> <laughs>